The New Dentist Boost Camp is a one-of-a-kind CE course that focuses on the new dentists up to six years out of school. The next New Dentist Boost Camp starting October 19th has a few spots available live and unlimited spots to join us via the live stream. Register to be there live or on the live stream at www.dentistboost.com. Here are some Boost Campers talking about their experience from the first Boost Camp. New Dentist Boost Camp really gives us like a lot of resources that I didn't know about before, so it was really nice and some eye-opener, and it kind of creates a camaraderie for us um, to be able to see people who are still in dental school or freshly out or have been in associateship for a couple years or even somebody who has already pra- um, purchased their own practice. So it's really great to kind of have a network of a support system, and I think it's super worth it and really, yeah, worth your time. It's tailored to young dentists so it's a uh, it's a great transition from dental school to CE in the real world so you're surrounded by 19 other other uh, people that are in similar situations as you so you're free to ask the questions you want to ask and uh, you're a little more comfortable in that situation Welcome to the Dental Amigos podcast with Dr. Paul Goodman and attorney Rob Montgomery taking you behind the scenes of the dental business world all the things you didn't learn in dental school but wish you had. Rob is not a dentist and Paul is not a lawyer, but since Rob is a lawyer, we need to tell you that this podcast is for informational purposes only and shouldn't be considered legal advice. Listening to this podcast does not and will not create an attorney-client relationship. As is always the case, you should formally consult with legal counsel before proceeding with any legal matter. Learn more about The Dental Amigos at www.thedentalamigos.com. And now, here are the Dental Amigos. Hello, everyone. I'm Rob Montgomery, and I'm joined, as always, by the head nacho himself, Dr. Paul Goodman, and welcome to another episode of the Dental Amigos. Great to be here with you, Rob, as always. Yeah, it's good to see you here, Paul. Uh, Today, we're joined by Dr. Richard Lowe. Uh, Richard uh, is a practicing dentist who is a 2015 grad from Midwestern University in Glendale, Arizona. Uh, After dental school, Richard went on to complete a two-year AEGD residency with the U.S. Army at Fort Hood, Texas, uh, which I believe he completed somewhat recently. Uh, Richard now practices as an Army dentist at Fort Still uh, in Oklahoma. Uh, All that being said, most, if not all of you, uh, know Richard as the co-host of the very popular Shared Practices podcast, which, uh, Paul, you and I have had the privilege to be guests on. Oh, yeah, great, great value you guys are sharing. Yeah, and uh, last and probably most importantly, Richard is a happily married father with two daughters. So uh, now, without further ado, here's Richard Lowe, and welcome, amigo, and thanks for being on the show. Thanks for having me. I'm, I'm excited to be on your guys' show to turn the mic around here. Yeah, we, yeah uh, it's great to have you, Richard. We'd like to start off with some hard-hitting questions. Uh, I would like to know... Uh, what is your favorite nacho topping? If we're going out for nachos uh, where you live, uh, and we, I say you choose the topping, like a patient says, you choose my uh, treatment plan, what topping are you going to pick? I would say like a, like a shredded pork. Shredded pork? Um, so, you know, not, not a typical nacho topping, but um, like maybe like a spicy, sweet shredded pork on top of your nachos. That would be amazing. I like that. I like that answer. So when, when I come out to Texas, I hope we can get that. Kind of like an El Pastor kind of... Uh... Nacho yeah, thing, right? exactly. Oh, I yeah. like that. I like it's combining almost tacos and nachos in one plate. You've done it. That should be your new thing. So, <laughs> hey, so um, Richard, you know, Paul and I have talked uh, 
about getting somebody on the show uh, who has uh, experience in the military as, as a dentist. And, you know, we joke that, you know, with, with Richard Lowe now, we've got like, you're like our Swiss Army Knife guest today. So we can cover the military aspect of your experience and, and chat about that. And we can also talk about a lot of the things that, that you've learned through through your podcast and then talk about, you know, your podcast and how you got involved in it. So. Uh, for me, it's uh, this is great. So we can kind of uh, cover a bunch of different things that we've we've wanted to. So if we could start off, you know, tell people uh, if you can about kind of what your experience has been with your military residency. I mean, to me, you know, I see and hear a lot of dentists talk about the student debt that they have and and see on Facebook groups and blogs that obviously it's a very real issue. And, you know, there is there is an alternative to to that, which is you know, the military for for a lot of people. And um, but it's easy to say that that's an alternative without fully understanding kind of what that means and what it can do to help you and sort of what some of the sacrifices are. So if you can kind of take us through, you know, what your military residency was all about, uh, that would be great. Sure. So to, to start off with uh, military experience, you know, I, I come from the anti-debt Dave Ramsey camp. I'm kind of a recovering Dave Ramseyite um, and, and was really intimidated by the student loans that I was going to take on in dental school. Um, and actually, the, the doctor who influenced me to get into dentistry, um, he was going to USC dental school. And I was actually a missionary for my church for two years down in California. I learned Spanish. I had a lot of phenomenal nachos and uh, tacos and Mexican food down in uh, East L.A. Um, area. And when we were having dinner with them, they had us over for dinner, feeding missionaries a few times. And, and as they talked about dentistry, talked about the Army paying for their USC $500,000 education, all of it started to kind of make sense. So I, I got introduced to dentistry as a career option, at the same time, I was introduced to the idea of doing it through the Army to pay for it. Um, so I was very kind of fortunate in that, um, to have that in my head from the start. Like, okay, maybe maybe this is a way to pay for it. Interesting. And um, a few years later, got into dental school and um, had everything lined up with my Army scholarship packet and got accepted for the scholarship. So went to Midwestern Arizona, which is a very expensive private school. You know, you're coming out with easily 420, 430, 450 with interest um, by the end of it all. Uh, brand new school, beautiful buildings, um, great faculty, humanistic, very much University of Pacific style um, education with no major residencies to pull procedures away from the, the, the um, dental school aspect of things. There wasn't a lot of other, you know, endo residency, pedo, cross, pulling away big, big fun cases. Um, so I had a great experience there. And you know, signed up for the army. That it was going to be a lot of work. It was going to be, um, you know, pros and cons, and they're going to tell you where to go, and, and you can deploy, and that's part of the deal, and, and it's, a, it's a way to serve. So, and I'd also been told, um, and I think this is absolutely true, that if you're going to do the the military scholarships, Air Force, Army, Navy, um, don't do it just for the money. Um, the money is phenomenal to get your dental school paid for. Um, but there's, there's a lot of, um, it, it's, it's a lifestyle. It's not just a job. It's not something you can kind of just leave at home or leave at work and go home. Um, they kind of own you for, for the time of, of your payback. And so I had a four year payback and I knew that, um, 
that was going to, you know, it was going to be an experience. So I also had heard about the Army's residency. So they have Actually, can one I stop year. you there, Richard, first? So yeah, go Tell for us, it. sort of like, what were your obligations? What did you have to do uh, in dental school uh, for the Army, if anything? So um, ironically, actually, in dental school, you are classified as individual ready reserve, meaning you do absolutely nothing. So you get $2,000 a month living stipend. They pay for your books, tuition fees, um, and you really have almost no interaction with the Army at all. Um, I chose to do, like, there's an Army officer basic training. They call it Bullock in San Antonio. I was able to do that between my first and second year of dental school. I did that with a bunch of my classmates who were also doing the Army scholarship. So we kind of went and hung out in San Antonio, and, you know, you're, you're shooting M9s and M16s and doing night land nav out in the forest, you know, with a compass and a, a little red headlight that you can only turn on to look at your land. Your, so just to paint this picture, you were at one point setting denture teeth during the day and on the weekends handling weaponry? No, it was... Uh, for, for 95% of the time, just dental school, for a six-week period during dental school, I went to San Antonio and did handle weaponry. Um, you know, did, it was like one day on the range. That was like, a unique, unique dental school experience. Yeah. So, and most people do that after dental school, their, their officer basic course. Um, I just happened to have a summer break, and we, we fit it in there. Um, but for the majority of those, those scholarship recipients, you do nothing while you're in dental school. Um, and it doesn't start until you graduate. And when you graduate, you get your orders. You know, they send you a big list of here's all the places you could go. You rank them, and you often do not get what you want. You know, you, you have a top 10, and if you get something in your top 10, great. If you don't, that is what it is. You, you go where they send you. Um, uh, but I applied for residency straight out of school. So there's one-year residency. There's a two-year residency. I knew that the one-year residency would give me great clinical experience, uh, but it wouldn't necessarily change the scope of practice while I was still in the Army. For example, so the one-year grads from the, the one-year AEGs end up filling the same slot that normal dentists straight out of dental school fill. And so the two-year residency is this weird pseudo-specialty. In the Army, it's considered a, a specialty. I'm, now, I'm not a general dentist to the Army. I'm a comprehensive dentist. Um, and so that fills different slots than the, the general dentist. What's, what's the difference, Richard? Uh, what does that mean from a practical standpoint? To, that, what's the distinction there? For, for um, two things. One is that you're the substitute specialist. So if the endodontist is deployed or on leave or has um, they're moving and for a few months we don't have an endodontist, you're the root canal doc. You're doing all the root canals. If the oral surgeon is gone, you're picking up the slack and taking out more wisdom teeth. If um, you're filling in um, whatever needs that duty station or that post, that, that Army base needs. Um, or if you get deployed, same thing, whatever needs are there. So your scope of practice is a lot wider, and you're not just doing fillings and crowns. You're doing a lot more surgery, perio, uh, getting teeth out, root canals. Implants even um, are a possibility. Richard, so, you, know, you know me and GPRs and AGDs are like, on my top 10 list of behind nachos and my family. Don't ask me the order for that one. My family doesn't want to know. I'm just uh, joking. <laughs> but uh, Good thing they don't yeah, listen to this Because I taught in a residency program. I did a multi-year uh, GPR myself and have taught there ever since and teaching two programs now. 
uh, when I'm just super interested in this discussion, when you are this person, who's teaching you guys or who's overseeing if you need to do a, a molar root canal that you're just not familiar with or understand? Who's, who do you go for, do for guidance? In residency or out of residency? In residency. Okay, so when we had um, CODA come around and they were inspecting our program, because um, they all, every single one-year, two-year residency has to meet certain CODA requirements, we actually asked the CODA guy, we said, what do you see that's different about the Army residencies versus other AEGDs and GPRs? Um, and he said, the one thing is that you guys have board-certified specialists in every area. So we had a board-certified endodontist who was sitting right next to us. He was doing root canals in his operatory under his microscope. We all had microscopes in our operatories. We're doing root canals, doing retreats. Um, and if we got stuck, he would come on over and help us out. Um, same thing, perio. We're doing perio surgery with the, the board-certified periodontist. Prof, we had two prosthodontists. We had an orthodontist, pedodontist, a um, couple of oral surgeons. Um, pretty, pretty phenomenal mentorship and and they all have come out of their military residencies uh, and their expectations and their standards are are pretty dang hot especially because um in the military the military owns you and i've got this pros and cons of of the military we'll circle back to this because this is a list i really wanted to get to but military owns you and in residency they double own you it's like you're you're practicing under their license under their credentials and um and they have the ability to tell you you need to stick around after hours and do this lab work and do this other work, and you have expectations that you will have these things done, and there are real consequences if you don't have them done. Um, and, and like, one of the things that one of the prosthodontists, there was a prosthodontist who taught at the Army Prof Residency and got out, and now is teaching at a civilian prof residency, and he said that, like, he can't order his his students to not be on their phones or computers while they are in class. Like we literally couldn't fall asleep. If we start to fall asleep, you have to stand up and go to the back of the class and are not allowed to be on your phones or on your computers. Like you're in a, a small room of 16 of you in the, in the two-year residency of that, and you have to pay attention the entire time. You're taking and for notes. Richard, for my, you know, uh, I always say I'm going to send Rob to fa- a filling fantasy camp because he just wants to enjoy that experience one day. I don't know how we're getting around the legal issues of a lawyer doing a filling, but we're going to fi- we're going to do it one day. Central America. Uh, yeah. yeah. So, but uh, I really, you know, as someone who just teaches so many different things, hands-on implant courses, residency programs, dental schools, and I do, you know, my own clinical chairside mentorship of my own associates. That's such an ideal way to learn because, you know, your end- endo. Uh, advisor you know they're accountable for the patients too and they have there's something you know that like yesterday when I was mentoring my um, associate who's awesome we were just doing work together and I was letting her do some and me do some and I had to make sure it was right it was you know my private practice and you know it could be as as you know mundane as making sure the you know Siljanot's right for a counter impression you know uh, counter impression but if it's not right it comes back and hurts me right so Right. I think in your world, that's just such an ideal way to learn. And I can see your your supervisor, the process, really, I know more of that world where they can be on their phones, right, in the GPRs or the programs, and you don't have the same level of control. But also for him, he also doesn't have the same level of accountability to those patients, where when he leaves teaching, he goes back to his own patients, right? And those patients stay there. And that's not bad. It's just that your your scenario just really seems ideal. 
No, it's it's pretty phenomenal. And I remember um, taking out wisdom teeth and having the oral surgeon literally standing over my shoulder and I'm holding the elevator and I'm, you know, putting it against the tooth. And he's like, no, you're doing it wrong. And I like change my angle. No, you're doing it wrong. And he literally grabs my hand and re-angles it, kind of shows me, demonstrates for me. And, you know, I've been using an elevator wrong for the whole time I was in dental school. And, and because I had that mentor standing right beside me, because um, even if I'd watched him do it time and time again, and then I thought I was doing it right, um, to have him sit there and say, no, this is how you do it, and, and literally hold my hand like, and, yeah, and, and have awesome. me do it right, it's pretty, pretty phenomenal. So the training you get from Army residencies um, is, is, is next to none. Like, it's, it's a great opportunity. I was super grateful I got it. I was also super miserable. It was a lot of work, and it was a lot of stress. Is a lot of difficulty, but uh, yeah. So Richard, you, you said that the pros. So everything I've heard so far sounds spectacular. You know, before we forget and move on, you know, yeah. what what are the pros and cons of, of, of being in the military? So um, let's let's start with the pros, and then we'll get to the cons. So I would say um, number one, getting having the ability to take care of soldiers um, and just do whatever they need and have no financial boundaries. So it's just whatever they need and you have the ability to take care of them. You know, if they've got time on post and they can stay for some longer rehabilitation and more complex care, you just get to do whatever they need. And so that feeling of being able to to serve this patient base and to do it without any sort of restrictions, um, as opposed to kind of having to work with patients who can't pay for things and, and, wanting to help them out, but you can't help them out because they can't pay for treatment. Um, it's just a different experience to be able to do whatever they need done, it done. So that's probably my number one would be um, that clinical situation mm-hmm. um, is, is pretty awesome. That's powerful stuff. Um, I would say the, the next step is, is along with that group mentorship, practice, um, residency type thing. So even if you're not doing a residency, you're practicing in a group setting with colleagues who are very able and willing to help out. And so if there's a prosthodontist at your clinic, if there's an endodontist at your clinic, you have a question, you get stuck. Um, they're very much there and willing and helpful. They're not bothered typically um, to come over and, and show you something or, or help you out. Um, so the mentorship, and especially if people are um, willing to step up and do more and really take advantage of that situation, you can get a lot of really, really good mentorship in the Army from your specialists, from other providers, and just being in that group setting where you're not alone, you're not the only doc out there, especially straight out of school, trying to figure things out on your own, um, it's really nice to have that other perspective, that camaraderie, and also other dentists to just talk to. It's not just you and assistants who you know, just don't care about the dentistry on the same level and, and don't own the problems and the situations. So that, that group setting is something I've actually really, really enjoyed. I really um, just take a minute, Rich, it's great sharing and um, I, you know, am a co-owner of two small human beings like you. Is that the right word for it? I'm not sure. But yeah, um, yeah. Uh, we have the second child now, and we, you know, Daphne's four, and we're going through a lot of these, you know, is this normal, right? So, you know, we ask a doctor, we ask other <laughs> parents, and, you know, that's what you get in these environments where, I mean, I'll just use an example where sometimes our associate will come running in and say, the patient says my screw retained implant crown is tight and pushing on the other teeth. And I said, that is totally normal. And they think it's a you know disaster. And right. I say, that's normal. You just like, I had a friend who was really a close friend and his wife, 
and uh, they were having trouble with their newborn sleeping. And they, you know, his wife called up my wife and said, you know, uh, I can't believe my baby doesn't sleep through the night. And said, how old is she? She's only three months old. And she said, well, that they're not supposed to. It's normal for them not to right. sleep through the night. And these are all the things that you get in. That's why I'm such a big fan of these programs because you get a year or two of hanging with people who are your peers, but not just your peers, but also people there who are dedicated to helping you with, is this normal or not? So then you can take that decision-making on for your career, and then maybe you will text a colleague. I mean, I handle, I mean, a lot of my mentorship of my satellite practice is done through text, but that's an easy way to mentor. But they have the they all have the foundation of this GPR experience and this decision-making where we really can just communicate in a way that's, um, helpful in private practice. So I just think that's an important point to note for our listeners. And it's great for you to share that, that that environment of is this normal uh, in dentistry yeah. is so important for young dentists and young parents. I, I love that that phrase in the way, is this normal? Because that's totally, you know, your first few years, you're seeing things that you've never seen before. And to just have that colleague to fall back on and say, hey, am I crazy? Is this normal? Like, what would you do here? Um, is, is a lot of fun. Um, so but next, I would say, this is this makes the, the pros and cons list. Um, so the PT test and the height and weight. So the Army, every six months, makes you do a two-mile run, two minutes of push-ups, two minutes of sit-ups, and you're graded on a scale based on your age, your gender, um, and then you have a, a weigh-in as well. You have to go get weight. And um, you have to meet certain standards on all four, the three physical events and also the height and weight. Um, this is something that I have been both very grateful for and very frustrated with at times. Um, I'm glad that the Army forces me to stay in shape because I'm not one who always is great about that. Um, but because I'm also one that's not always great about that on my own, it's also been a struggle to hit some of those standards at, at certain times. And so it's been a, a source of a lot of stress, especially during residency when I'm pulling sometimes all-nighters every week. You know, and, and there was months of residency where literally either multiple times in a single week, I was up all night doing lab work, charts, papers, presentations, um, or week to week, you know, I'd, I'd pull one all-nighter every single week, had very little time for um, family and other things, and then to feel like I had to meet this standard of height, weight, and push-ups and sit-ups, none of which, I am not someone who can just roll out of bed and run a 12 minute, two mile. Like I am someone who really has to on all three events, push up, sit ups and run. I have to train to pass and meet the standards. Um, so that's, that's something that both has been a, a, a pro and a con is, is the army needs you to be in army shape. And if you're not on board with that, then you probably shouldn't sign up for the army. Hey, Richard, so, what, what happens if, if you, if you, people don't meet those criteria, do you get like some sort of grace period or like what, what are sort of the, the potential ramifications if, if, if folks can't meet those standards? Sure. So um, if you don't pass, and not that I'm speaking from experience here, uh, you get put in remedial um, PT. So you end up having extra sessions. So in residency, we didn't have to do um, physical training every single morning with the unit, whereas um, other people did. For, and so, you know, we could just go straight to patient care whereas other providers had to Monday, Wednesday, Friday, go do exercise with the unit. Um, if you fail the PT test, which I did, um, you have to do the morning three days a week uh, PT with the unit. And actually, I think it was four days a week at the time I was doing it in the morning. And then I also had four days a week afternoon PT. So that was cutting into my residency time, my patient care yeah. time, 
my, my health, my sanity, if you fail multiple times within a year, um, you know, they can take action against you. They can kick you out of residency. They can, technically, they, can, they, they tell you that they can separate you from the Army, but you have an obligation because of your scholarship. And so usually they're not going to kick you out. But if you're trying to stay in long term after you've paid back your scholarship commitment, then that definitely is a, a big black mark on your on your kind of record and your your ability to promote and move forward. Plus, you don't want to beg. I feel like I would be they'd be having a room and just consistently yell me stop eating nachos, and I would say, you know, you want me to stop doing what I love? <laughs> Doesn't sound nice, but yeah, I, I I've, uh, can uh, commiserate with you. I, I've never been in the in a military setting, but I try to stay in shape myself and it's not always easy with all the things we have going on as uh, young practitioners or medium age practitioners for me and being a new dad and all those things I can only imagine how tough that is for you so what other uh, yeah, are there yeah. other negatives Richard too well two last uh, uh, pros and then I'll, I'll get to the, okay. the cons I'll do these pros real quick here okay. so the next one would be the medical medical is fantastic I had um, laser eye surgery when I first got into the army at PRK um, and so my eyesight's now 2015. Don't have to wear glasses or contacts. Um, I just had my tonsils out. I got two weeks off of leave, convalescent leave, to recover from that. It was one of the worst experiences um, I've, I've had medically, but um, glad they're out. I'm glad they're taken care of. Um, and then super random, but traveling when you're in the Army, um, every time you go to an airport, they've got USOs where you can kind of hang out, chill, and get free food. You get free checked bags. There's like all these little teeny military perks that are nice. And that's obviously not the reason that anyone would ever be in the military, but it, it right. sure is nice when people thank the soldiers and, and kind of give back. As um, you said, so, yeah, that's, that's a lifelong thing. My, my dad was in the Air Force after dental school, and he, I remember him saying that often. And this was, you know, 40 years ago, they went to Hawaii and they traveled on, uh, that was one of the perks. So I, I remember that. Absolutely. Um, so in terms of the least favorite, I would say that the Army owns you, and you are a soldier first and a dentist second. They tell you that. Like we've been told by our chain of command, you're, you're a dentist second and a, and a soldier first. And it, it's hard to, to really own that when in your heart of hearts you feel like you're a dentist first and a soldier second. Um, and that means things like PT tests, things like doing whatever the Army tells you to do, and the Army has a couple different priorities. They've got their dental priorities, but there's also plenty of Army priorities. It's, it's the original corporate dental. Um, I think there's over, in just the Army alone, there's over 1,000 active duty dentists. And so you're not only in a large corporate organization of dentistry, you're also in a massive government corporate organization of, of the Army. So there's annual trainings. There's, there's all of these things that take you away from patient care that kind of drive you nuts. You're getting like another round of, you know, this is how much you can gift to your civilian employees or the civilian assistant. Like you're getting another training on this, that, and the other. Every three months you have a whole day of just the dumbest training that you could think. It's not dumb. It's necessary. It's needed. They got to do it. But there's a lot of red tape, a lot of bureaucracy um, that's very frustrating and pulls you away from patient care. Um, and, and there's really no, no way around it, if that makes sense. Um, the, the next part I would say is that your experience and your, your happiness is very dependent on who your commander is and who the commanding general of your post is, because um, based on their personalities, their priorities, the climate that they set up, um, it really can turn like a very positive work environment to kind of a toxic work environment. 
And even within clinics, um, same thing with whoever's running the clinic, whichever dentist is running the clinic, whichever assistants are there. Um, the assistants in the Army system are government employees who, once they're in the system, they're almost impossible to fire. And so you get a lot of people who are very secure in their job and not very motivated to put out their best. And there's probably, you know, one out of four is phenomenal. Maybe another one out of four is decent. And then sometimes like two out of the four are are mediocre or worse. um, And they just don't care so much. So that's kind of frustrating to be in that kind of environment. Um, The computers, ironically, are one of the most frustrating things. You can't, there's no Wi-Fi at work. You can't plug a USB into anything. The everything goes super slow. You're getting yelled at for not doing online trainings, and you can't even get the link to work um, with your. Just everything technology-wise is very difficult because it's so buttoned up. Being in the military, um, possibility of deployments, um, and then you know there's things like budget. So the army will have the budget to buy whatever equipment you need. And then the budget will freeze when the fiscal year turns over in September, October. So right now we're kind of in this budget freeze where for like two or three months, your clinic can't order anything because apparently they don't know how to budget. And what if you, you run know, out of everything for your fillings? And they, you know, they buy ahead and they stockpile and there's special exceptions. But for, for mission critical stuff, they'll get it ordered. But it, it's like it just feels really weird that like, oh, no, we can't order anything this month or next month because. You know, it's the budget freeze. and, and I'm going to try them my assistants soon because they love ordering everything. So don't tell them. I say, we have a budget <laughs> freeze. freeze. Yeah. Um, <laughs> Richard, uh, th- uh, I'm curious, uh, what do dentists get deployed for when they need to be deployed into an area? Is there times where that happens? Yeah. Oh, absolutely. So the possibility of deployment is very real. You know, I've got one of my best friends from dental school, just got back from deployment. He was deployed for nine months. Um, a lot of times you are at either major posts in, in the Middle East, um, or um, a lot of times in Kuwait, the Army has um, some more established, safe posts in Kuwait that are like the the base of operations that um, they'll function out of in the Middle East. So you'll be the dentist there, and you're doing dentistry for all the, the soldiers that are deployed. Um, and sometimes it's really busy, and you're working all the time. Sometimes it's really slow, and you're working out all the time. I, my buddy sent me some pictures of him downrange. <laughs> he is in shape. He's looking really, really good. So uh, it just kind of depends um, how that goes, but it's usually a nine-month deployment right now. Um, a lot of times they'll ask for volunteers first, and if no one goes for that, you're, you're whoever's next on the list who kind of has the most time without deploying, you're up, and, and they send you down. So that, that they, they're there deployed, and they would do some emergency dental care, so like a chair set up there, and if they need it for the soldiers? Um, no, I mean, some of their, they, they have mobile dental equipment, absolutely, and they can do that kind of emergency work, but they actually have dental clinics um, downrange. They don't oh, have, like, gotcha. Therac or any advanced, you know, things, but they, there's places where you're working out of that kind of emergency-type chair, but there's other places where they actually have kind of established permanent dental clinics. I mean, we're doing this podcast and having Rob as a partner, sometimes we have, you know, people who are more rob oriented and I don't know what they're talking about with their leases and briefs and torts and whatnot, brief torts. But, uh, uh, so I, I heard this story, uh, about IRM. I don't know if it's true. It was from our 74 year old associate, uh, cause he's, he was in the army and he said that IRM was because it would last for six months, which was like kind of the length of the deployment for soldiers. 
Uh, so I don't know if that's like a, a, a myth or was real. Some people still have IRM in their office. I suggest if you have it, just pick up your IRM and throw it out the window now. But, you know, then it's like, I might need it one day. I'm like, it's not a museum in your office, so like it kind of is. But, uh, you know, uh, that was uh, just my Army story from my associate, who was a great guy. But that's what he asked for IRM in our office. I'm like, we don't have it. And it really made him upset. But I'm like, we're still not that's getting funny. it. So, um, uh, on my end, Richard, I really appreciate you sharing all the things you did. I'm just really interested in your story. So I know you're going to give your time back to the military, but let's just say you're about to open up, and I don't know what you're going to do next after this, but let's say you're going to open up Richard Lowe's House of Dentistry and Nachos and in private practice. What would be some of the procedures that you learned in your residency and were able, to, outside of general dentistry, that you would feel comfortable offering in a private practice setting without direct supervision or anyone to rely on and say, hey, I really learned whether it's surgical extractions, implants, endo all of them because that would be interesting to our listeners yeah um so from the two-year residency that i did at fort hood um i would feel comfortable doing molar endo um under a microscope i think i'm definitely going to get a scope um doing retreats if i have to I, I don't love retreats they're not my favorite thing but um definitely surgical extractions rich preservation um indirect sinusless implants um i feel comfortable with even Things like um, aesthetic crown lengthening, I want to do more of them. I had a lot of fun doing those in residency, but I'd like to get a few more in my belt uh, before I get out of the Army. Um, some other perio procedures um, like crown lengthening. Crown lengthening would be something I'm very comfortable doing now. Um, some limited ortho, um, and actually more removable. Ironically, I, I learned more remo removable than I expected to. Um, and uh, definitely digital dentistry. So we did a lot of... Um, Therac, but also I got um, Blue Sky Bio up and running at our residency. That's, That's something awesome. I've had a lot of fun with. Um, so for me, I realized in dental school that I did not love um, simple restorative fillings and crowns. You know, they're good, and, and I didn't mind doing them, but at the same time, like, I just, it didn't get me excited um, like I maybe had hoped that I would, whereas I realized I did love the surgery. I did love some of these other aspects. So the fact that I feel pretty comfortable with impacted thirds, I feel comfortable with implants, with all these other surgeries, um, root canals, and I, I love these procedures. I, I'm 100% convinced that the residency was worth it because I knew the kind of dentistry that I wanted to be doing long term, and I knew I would probably burn out if I was just doing bread and butter dentistry and wouldn't want to be in dentistry long term. So for me, that was one of the biggest decisions of whether or not it's worth it to do the residency was I want to do residency at least or dentistry, even part-time in, in retirement, um, you know, maybe one or two days a week and really not have this retirement date where I, I get out of dentistry completely. I want dentistry to be something that I enjoy doing and will continue to do for a long, long time. And so for me, that was part of the decision to do residency. I mean, I think that's really awesome. What I could share with you, there's a medium age dentist who's multi-practice owner and does a variety of things. You know, I, out of my multi-year GPR, I wanted to be the Batman of dentistry and just say, oh, I'll do crown lengthening, then endo, then implants. And when you get into the quote unquote real world, uh, there's something that takes your attention away from that. And that's uh, everybody's crying, not your patients, usually your staff. No, I'm just joking, but there's a yeah. lot of management but when you can still hone in on and one of the things you said that just stood out to me is you know i've encouraged endodontists to learn to do implants because i think they would be the 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 
leading specialists of the future because a lot of um, back teeth are now fractured because older patients are living longer. They've had a lot of dentistry done, but you know, de general dentists are shipping them to the endodontist to check and see what happens. And you know, they'll access the tooth and say it's fractured. And someone like you could do that and then immediately shift. And I have an endodontist close by uh, to me who does this. He's awesome. Uh, shift to an extraction bone graft. So you kind of can play both roles at the same time. And I just think that that's... That's, that's actually one of my favorite procedures is when you've accessed and you realize, no, this is non-restorable, there's a fracture, you've got the scope out, you've got a rubber dam on, I actually will section it It's perfect. I mean, it, you know, I, I actually... Under the scope. I, I, you know, I don't know if you know this about me. I'm fairly disruptive, but I try to do it in a kind way. Uh, but uh, when I say this, endodontist or the person doing the endo, they don't have to be concerned about who's going to place that implant in that moment. They just have to solve the problem for the patient. And the problem for the patient is yeah. they have a non-restorable tooth. They're numb. And we had an awesome endodontist with us for 10 years, but she didn't do extraction. So she would close up the tooth. We would charge the yeah. patient roughly $300 for incomplete endo. They would then come back for a consult. That's now visit number two. We would then get them to the periodontist. That would be visit number three or one of the, someone in the office. And then they would have the extraction bone graft visit number four. And when that all could be accomplished, right at visit number one by the same practitioner. And it just, you know, we're gonna see more and more of this. And whether you're a general dentist or an endodontist who accesses teeth, you're gonna, and the microscope is perfect. She had a microscope, so that's how we identified a lot of these fractures. And when you do that, you can solve the problem in one visit, save the patient time, money, and hassle. And I just think it's just the, the future of general dentistry is that. And I think you're setting yourself up well uh, um, for that. Yeah, I, I love that. Those are actually my favorite appointments. So I think that's, that's a great point. Hey, Richard. So Paul and I, as, as you said at the outset, have both been on your podcast. And so for us, it's fun to turn the mic on you today. So a question that, you know, I'm very curious to hear the answer. You know, how on earth did you get into the whole podcasting world? As you know, at the time, I guess you started, you were probably a a dental student or a recent grad, like what, what was the, uh, what was the inspiration there? So, um, in dental school, I was in Arizona in Phoenix and knew Gary Takis. And originally he was kind of the only podcast in town. And I actually went over to his office and I said, this, this is awesome. Thank you for doing this. <clears throat> and, I, and I said, we need to, it'd be awesome to have more podcasts. And I said, has Howard Ferran ever done a podcast? And so I, I put together a, a pitch to go down to Dentaltown and I, I pitched Dentaltown on, this is why you guys should do a podcast. You should hire me part-time while I'm in dental school. I'd love to manage and run your podcast. Um, I ended up getting fired for, from them. They started the podcast without me. Um, and then the person who was his, his personal assistant quit. And so I actually took over the podcast from that person. So I, I produced, um, Howard Freeman's podcast for nine months while I was in dental school. Interesting. <laughs> Got to know a lot of other podcasters, Alan Mead and others. Alan really encouraged me. He's like, you should do your own. Um, and I, I felt like, well, I don't really have authority to do this. But the one thing I did feel like I had a lot of was angst about practice ownership. I really wanted to, I knew that as soon as I was done with my army commitment, that I was planning on getting out and owning a practice. And I've just always had that entrepreneurial bug um, but I also didn't want to feel like I was losing ground while I was in the army, that I was kind of stagnant and not learning more and, and advancing in that direction of practice ownership while I was in the army. So I was like, well, you know, a lot of podcasts do kind of random shotgun approach to, to their topics. I was like, what if we tried a season by season topical podcast? 
and we'll, we'll go through this journey from new grad to practice owner. And season one was, is ownership worth it? So we really explored that, like, for me, how do I know, am I the kind of person that should own their own practice versus working for someone else or working somewhere else? And then season two was acquisitions, and that was kind of our, our breakout season where we had um, some phenomenal guests like both of you on, on the show and really some amazing content to educate our, our listeners on that journey to acquiring a practice. And really, I was trying to create the resources that I want for myself because I'm going to be acquiring a practice in, in about three years when I'm done with my commitment here at Fort Sill. Um, and so I was so happy with how that season turned out. You guys helped build the Ownership Accelerator, which is a phenomenal offering that we have. I'm so grateful for your guys' involvement in that. Um, but essentially, this podcast was kind of solving my own problem. And I said, at the end of the day, if nothing else, I'll benefit. And, you know, maybe other people will listen and tune in. And I've been blown away. We've had over 200 iTunes reviews, um, people who have bought dental practices because of the show, um, and have really benefited and shared in a Facebook group that we um, kind of are, are very proud of. We've kept it a little bit smaller because we want people who are serious about this journey to practice ownership and kind of are on board with um, what we're all about. And uh, it's been been pretty awesome. And then to add some, some intrigue on, on top of all of that, about halfway through residency, my wife uh, said to me, she said, you know, this is a little bit much to be doing this very intensive residency, two small kids, the podcast, and I'm not very good with balance. And she said, you know, you can do residency, podcast, or, or marriage and family. You get to choose two out of the three. You don't get to have all three. So I kind of got an ultimatum. And uh, that's when I brought on George as the co-host of the show. And at, at that point, I was actually considering, do I drop the residency? Do I drop the podcast? Um, and I brought George on, and he was kind of the solution. So now that I am out of residency and the, the, no longer have that commitment, I'm, I'm so excited to be kind of on board full-time again with, with the podcast um, as, as my main side gig. That's, that's awesome, Richard. I mean, also, um, one of my goals in life was to have my face on a book, so you guys helped me with that because I got it in my operatory. So when someone gets mad at me, which is usually every hour, I go up and look, say, look, at my, my face is on a book, and I, you know, I did it. So that's my right. bucket list. Also on that, eating nachos out of a giant bucket. So that's uh, that's it. But I appreciate that nice. you guys are really are doing some awesome stuff for uh, uh, the young dentists out there. And I think the podcast space has just really exploded in the best possible way. These were not things that I had access to when I was in your shoes, and I wish I did. Yeah, no, it's it's been awesome to see um, how much knowledge is out there now um, that really wasn't there even three four years ago. Um, and, and the, the season we're getting into next, we're now transitioning. We've done a startup season. Now we're doing a season on uh, case acceptance. And so really getting into the skills of practice ownership. And once again, for me, this is another, my, my case acceptance right now is fantastic. My soldiers show up, they have to say <laughs> yeah. yes, and we have to treat them. But uh, I know that's not going to be the case when I get out. So I'm building a resource once again for myself that I can call upon in the future. So I'm, I'm grateful for everyone who gets on the show and contributes. Yeah, I, I love listening to your podcast. You have great guests, and you know you and George do do an awesome job. And you know, probably Paul and I haven't talked about this, but probably one of our inspirations for doing what we do, you know, is seeing what you guys do. And uh, it's it's an awesome resource for for dentists and for people in the community. But I think it's interesting that you talked about you mentioned the word resource a couple of times, 
And this is something that, you know, we all sort of deal with sometimes directly, sometimes a little more tangentially, which is, you know, what role should these podcasts, Facebook groups and blogs play uh, in, in the sort of the decision making process? And, you know, what role do they should they have for somebody that's considering practice ownership or doing anything that's uh, in, the, in the dental industry? And I sometimes see and get a little bit frustrated when I see people who kind of look at these resources as a substitute for getting consultants or professionals to do certain things uh, and instead of just using it as, as a resource to help them understand and be better consumers of those services to, to, to know the process because I think you know ultimately there is so much great information out there but it's not a substitute for getting professional help. Yeah, the, the funny thing is, you know, you're kind of talking about this idea yeah. of DIY. You know, it's like you've, you feel like you've listened to enough podcasts that you could just do this on your own. Um, and I feel bad because I, I almost feel like sometimes our, our philosophy on the podcast was to go more in-depth than you should on a podcast. So if there's ever a question of like, should we go into like numbers and practice valuation and, and really go deep on that? And if the answer was, well, it's a podcast, you know, it's not the best format for that. The answer was always, yes, we should. And, and the goal was to give people more knowledge, more in-depth understanding. But the goal was never to, to give people the sense that that's all you need. Because just because you've heard a few experts really dive in deep on, on a topic and you've learned that for yourself, actually doing it, the actual practice and the experience. Um, I would say this all ties back into the same thing as, as residency. The benefit of residency for me was not just how to do complex procedures when everything goes right. It's also what to do when everything goes wrong and what the, the normal looks like and what bad and good results can occur from doing the same thing. The same thing with, with hiring a professional. You, you need a professional who has seen good and bad, has seen all of the variations of how these practices can present, these problems that can occur, hiccups that you can have in the transition uh, or in a startup. I think that um, our goal is always to give people the information so that they can make the correct hiring decision and also to be able to um, maybe have a more educated understanding of what they were paying for um, and so that they are way more involved. We'd rather have someone who understands valuations and can bring a practice to the CPA or to the lawyer that they're pretty sure is not a lemon. They're pretty sure they're like, no, I know this is what I want. Now I'm ready to pay for the professional help to close on this and make this deal done. I mean, that's a great, and I bet Rob has been a great resource to me uh, over the years because he, he, you know, has said, Paul, this isn't a good idea. And I, I like to run things by him, you know, whether it's buying a, a small practice, I think I'm going to build up with uh, elbow grease and, things like that. And also, um, I always talk, I mean, I'm, I'm actually my friend's father, who just was a great resource. And I remember the story from dental school, he parked his car in New York City on the street and it got towed. And his dad, who was just a great mentor, said, you know, why don't you park in a parking garage? And he said, you know, back then it was like, it was 30 bucks. He's like, yeah, but you spent $250 in your whole day getting at your car out of being towed. And, you know, classic penny wise, dollar foolish type of decision. And, you know, right. you can't get your, you know, with a practice, um, I deal with this a lot, whether it's buyer coaching, transitions, working with Rob, working with young dentists, I rarely find that dentists 
who engage a lot of advisors are disappointed at the end. But I find all the time that dentists who do not engage enough advisors or any advisors um, are really regretful. And most dentists, you know, I say most, uh, will only ever buy one practice in their life. And it's important not to mess up on that first practice. And I just think dental school doesn't give us that mindset. And it gives us this, you know, I don't know if you heard me say it, this dentist cheat mentality that it's kind of the worst time to be that. And what, what, you, what you said about the lemon is when I, I say all the time, if I help someone look at a practice or a team of advisors, there's no downside. I either say, this sounds really good. You should move forward with this. Keep going. Sounds great. Yeah. And, and that's a great outcome. But what's even more important is if I say, there's like 14 red flags and you haven't told me the red whole story yet. So, you know, you shouldn't keep going with that. So I tell them it's the one thing for a dentist, which they would love. There's really no bad outcome and it's just money. You can always make more. So I think what you guys are doing is great is you're giving an understanding about the why. But I think Rob and I and I talk about this, too, that when you ask people on Facebook, they're just your colleagues and it's good to get their opinions. Yeah, about it. But if you're running a marathon that determines your financial future, you need a professional marathon coach. Yeah, I mean, it always amazes me, you know, and we've talked about this, Paul, when I'll look on a Facebook group and somebody's asking a question about a non-compete and whether or not it's enforceable, to see like 25 people who are not lawyers, who have not reviewed the agreement, right, yeah. who don't even know what the law is in the state where that person is, chiming in, telling them that this is what yeah. they can and can't do. And it's like, oh no, you know, yeah, like right. this is this is horrible advice, you know? And yeah. I, 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 Rob and I go back and forth this all the time, and it's like, I want to say one more thing, Richard, you probably can't, um, relate to his young parent and Rob Rob has an awesome daughter but you know she's old enough not to need this uh, when I go to a restaurant you know I love spending time with my four-year-old but I also love uh, just having a margarita in peace so sometimes that just those two things conflict so I give her my phone or the iPad to watch and you know some someone from a different generation is that we never did that I'm like yeah yeah you didn't have iPads so if you did right. you probably would give it to them so problem solving you know we I didn't have Facebook so I regret not being able to talk about an implant case with someone, but my generation probably was much more responsible with advisors to some degree because we didn't even think that we could get this information from our colleagues. So I just think you talked about balance and I, our, our wives sound a little similar, so I probably have some of the same traits you do. You know, balance is yeah. that, you know, doesn't mean you can't listen to your colleagues, but you just have to realize that they're at the same level as you in some of these, some of these arenas and you can't take their advice as professional advice. Absolutely. Um, and, and it's just this decision is going to impact the rest of your life. Why not do the right due diligence? Why not fork out a little bit of money and just pay someone to make sure that it's done right? Because there's nothing worse than being stuck with one mistake for, for 20, 30 years. Yeah. yeah, it's not an easy one to extract yourself from, uh, which I think sometimes people, people underestimate. You know, I think a lot of people in our generation now kind of grew up in the, the short sale generation as far as real estate goes, that, hey, well, you know, if my house is worth less than what I owe the bank, I'll just give the house back yeah. to the bank and I'll walk away and do right. something else. Like that, that, there, that doesn't really exist in the dental practice world, you know, because no. you won't fail and you can't give it back. You just have years of suffering trying to, to, to manage this thing that you're now shackled to that, that you can't get away. It is not providing you with the income, the fulfillment, whatever, you know, the, the issue is that, you know, that, that you're looking for in your, in your professional practice. And so often we see that, you know, it, it can be avoided, you know, if, if people had done the right things. I mean, 
we're talking, you know, recently to a client who is looking at a practice valuation that looks like on its face, it seems like a number that, that makes sense. When you drill down and you look at the other issues and you get beyond the revenue and you start to look at the expenses, you start to say, huh, maybe this isn't so good, you know? And so that's where a good CPA comes in and saves the day right. and, 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 oh, yeah. and crisis averted, you know, for relatively small dollars, you know, and don't get me wrong. I mean, I, I think these things are great. I mean, we love having clients that are informed and that understand the process, that know the right questions to ask, you know, because ultimately we're not decision makers. You know, we're advisors and the clients have to make the decision. So to the extent they are empowered and they understand, you know, they're informed, you know, it's an informed decision, just like in medicine, uh, then that's a great client for us. But, you know, and it's not just professionals, you know, it's all kinds of consultants too, you know, people that want to try to cut corners with a startup and not, not work with, with people that can really help them and put them in the position to succeed. You know, I say are, you know, they're, they're really rolling the dice. And it's a, I would just add, you know, and Richard will understand this, maybe Rob will too, you don't smile direct your first practice purchase because dentists are <laughs> furious. And I, I get it that, you know, people are just doing orthodontics at their house. Does not seem like it should be right. Uh, but what's the result if they mess up at their home with this smile direct club or whatever it's call, called? You know, I don't know, bad occlusion, bad bite. What happens if you smile direct your first practice purchase? I don't know, you, you ruin the rest of your life. So, you know, the, the risk reward is just so high there. And um, I think we're all doing just great, a great service of the community. And I'll use Rob term, bring awareness uh, to this issue because it is a different world of practice transitions than it was even 10 years ago. Yeah, no, and one thing I would love, the one thing I didn't get to do as much on our acquisition season um, and even the startup season is I'd love to find stories of people who have messed it up. It's, it's a hard thing to find people who are willing to talk about like, you know what, here, I, I kind of screwed this up. Um, or I bought a practice thinking it was X, Y, and Z, but it turned out to be something else. Cause there's a lot of, you know, sometimes there's like shame in that decision or, you know, but some people who've gotten past that are now successful doing something else and they, they've changed it up and gotten through that. But hearing those stories, if you guys come across those stories, those are the stories that I'd love to capture on podcast because there's so much wisdom in other people's hard experiences that they've been through. So that's just a little idea. If you come across people who are willing to talk about those those types of experiences that are difficult, I think those make phenomenal podcast episodes. If you hacked into my They're phone, out there. If you hacked into Paul <laughs> yeah. Goodman's Facebook account, and know the password is not nachos123 for all of you out there. I have many of those stories in my phone, and uh, I take a lot of time to respond to them. Not everybody even knows I do this personally, and try to get them on the right track. And sometimes I will ask, "Do you mind if I, I hip, uh, you know, everyone's, I hipify your story and just share sure. it as, you know, a medium age practice owner selling their startup or something like that?" And I want to do more of that because when I'm on the Facebook groups and people get so upset with me saying, you don't know every dentist in the country, that is true, but I do know a lot of stories that are just in a lot of ways heartbreaking, and I'm trying yeah. my best to share them in a, in a way that's classy and professional because most people are not gonna go on a group and, and say that because the next thing they'll get back is, but my friend is crushing it where you live and that's just gonna make them feel even worse. So I, I totally am on board with you on that. Maybe maybe a little voice changer app you can have. Yeah, yeah I like that. I always want to be one of those FBI guys. Perfect. Thanks. <laughs> that sounds yeah. great. Hey, Richard. So, uh, is there uh, anything that you'd like to uh, tell our listeners about, or any kind of uh, products or events or things that uh, you'd like to to chat about uh, before we leave? Yeah. So, the the 
I would say that if you guys haven't listened to the Shared Practices podcast, definitely come over and give us a listen. I think this next season on case acceptance is going to be phenomenal. We're building a course around that, just like we did with the Ownership Accelerator. Um, but I got we got asked on the Facebook group, um, any advice for new dentists? And I would say my advice would be to figure out the kind of dentistry you want to do then do whatever it takes to learn that dentistry, whether that's a residency, a specialty, um, mentorship, and then as soon as possible, get into practice ownership if that's what you want to do. And so that's my advice for people is figure out what kind of dentistry do I want to do and do I want to own a, a dental practice and aggressively pursue both of those things, the kind of dentistry you want to do and then early practice ownership. And I think that is going to get people empowered to take care of their student loans, and get themselves into kind of the lifestyle and life as a dentist that they've really wanted and expected. That's uh, that's awesome, Trevor. Advice. And are you guys going to be at the Voices of Dentistry in 2019 in January? I will be there. I think I'll be recording um, episodes and, and podcasts. I I didn't make the speaker docket. They're, they're limited on space this year because they they were doing like a TED Talk style where they just have one stage and try and get like a them packed in there. So I don't know. It's, it's still shaking out, but I don't think I'm well, going to be able to. Surprise speak news it, for I'll you be and our, sure. our listeners. Uh, I'm gonna we're gonna try to bring our podcast there, and and Rob Montgomery himself. So we're gonna ask him how he tolerates hanging out with the Nacho guy so much, <laughs> and is he like nice. he is very entertaining, says, and, uh, highly entertaining. I have like a 20 minute TED Talk uh, thing where I'm gonna probably do something on. Uh, I'm buyer coaching. I'm, I'm developing that for the Voice of Dentistry, cool. so we'll get to uh, hang out in person and and. Uh, I'm excited to bring Rob uh, to be surrounded by dentists. He can't wait, and uh, we'll uh, see you in person there. Awesome. We'll see you guys there. Thanks for having me on the show. Hey, thanks for being on the show, Richard, and, and thanks for all you do uh, for, for dentists. Thanks for listening to another great podcast with The Dental Amigos. And don't forget to tune in next time to have the dental business demystified. If you're looking for more information about today's podcast, you can find it on thedentalamigos.com. If you're looking for Paul, you can find Paul at drpaulgoodman.com. And if you're looking for Rob, you can find him at yourdentallawyer.com. This podcast has been sponsored by Orange Line Media Group, helping dentists and other professionals create content people love. Find out how we can help you take your business to the next level at www.orangelinemg.com. Till next time.